Now, in addition to welcoming you here today, I thought I'd mention or remind you that there are history enthusiasts all over the world who watch and listen to the recordings of these programs online. And that this series is only possible because of the generous support of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and all of our members. So if you enjoy these programs, and I'm really speaking to the people who are watching the recorded version of this, <laughs> and would like to support them by becoming a member, you can do so at our website, www.vahistorical.org. And now it's my pleasure to introduce today's program. After six states had already seceded, and after Virginia's secession convention was already soon to convene, former President John Tyler from his James River Plantation suggested in a January 1861, in January 1861 Richmond newspaper column that there be a conference of the border states to seek alternatives to disunion. The Virginia legislature expanded the invitation to all states whose 131 delegates convened at the Willard Hotel in February for what became known as the Old Gentlemen's Convention. With Tyler presiding, other Virginia statesmen who attended include future Confederate War Secretary James Seddon and former U.S. Senator William Cabell Reeves. Typically, the convention is briefly dismissed as a failure, but actually it played an important role in slowing the secession crisis and facilitating Abraham Lincoln's safe installation into the presidency. Mark Tooley is president of the Institute on Religion and Democracy in Washington, DC, a think tank examining religion and politics where he's worked for 22 years. He's also editor of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. A graduate of Georgetown University, he previously worked for the CIA, but he can't tell us what he did. He's a lifelong Northern Virginian and a lifelong Civil War buff. His articles on history, religion, and politics have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Detroit News, Newsweek, Weekly Standard, Washington Examiner, and other publications. The piece that almost was is his third book. So please join me today in giving a warm VHS welcome to Mark Tooley. Well, thank you very much. It's a great uh, honor and pleasure to be here. And I've been instructed that you all are an intimidating audience of very well-informed people who will immediately recognize when I mispronounce names of old Virginia families, <laughs> since uh, many of you belong to old Virginia families. So you'll have to indulge me as a Northern Virginian who uh, is not completely familiar with all the old Richmond ways. Um, my uh, book, of course, is on uh, the Washington uh, Peace Conference of uh, February 1861, which was the last major attempt to uh, avert uh, the uh, division of the country and uh, the anticipated uh, civil war. And uh, it really was the last opportunity for both sides to present their closing arguments uh, before that uh, calamity began. And yet, uh, strangely, it's... Um, uh, a gathering that's not much recalled or even um, much known about, uh, even by very knowledgeable and avid um, history and um, Civil War buffs. And uh, 
typically uh, even very um, good histories will give it um, a few paragraphs. Uh, I think James uh, McPherson's uh, Battle Cry of Freedom gives it uh, maybe a page and a half, a very good page and a half, but not a lot of information. And typically it's dismissed uh, as a failure. And in terms of um, not preventing the Civil War, obviously it was a failure, uh, but it did uh, achieve some, uh, some other important purposes that uh, merit mentioning, and which I will mention uh, towards the end of my talk. Uh, but going back to that time in early uh, 1861, obviously the country uh, is in crisis, uh, in a spiral. As mentioned, uh, six states uh, already have uh, seceded in the Deep South. Uh, seventh, Texas, uh, would very shortly uh, secede. Uh, the outgoing uh, president has only uh, a couple of months uh, in office and uh, does not want to intrude himself very much into the situation. And uh, literally no one knows what's going to happen uh, next year, next month, even uh, next week uh, regarding the country. And so uh, stepping into this uh, power vacuum in uh, January of 1861 uh, is an old uh, Virginia statesman uh, who's uh, been retired for uh, uh, 16 years at this point and hadn't been very much uh, heard from. And that's uh, John Tyler, uh, who had been um, the first president to uh, take office by virtue of his uh, predecessor's uh, death and uh, very helpfully and with uh, dignity and effectiveness had established that uh, peaceful pre precedent of the vice president uh, stepping in um, to the fold and uh, had left office not very popular and uh, a man without a political party and who was um, very pleased by the fact that uh, he was very independent and not beholden to any special interest in his mind and of course had named his plantation uh, near the James River uh, Sherwood Forest uh, in honor of uh, Robin Hood, uh, someone who uh, stood uh, against the special interest. He uh, had literally uh, known uh, the founding uh, generation. Uh, his father had been uh, governor of Virginia uh, in the, the Revolutionary War period, had been personal friends of uh, Patrick Henry and uh, almost all of the other old uh, Virginia founders. Uh, John Tyler, who was born in 1790, uh, was old enough to have known um, many of the founders himself, uh, certainly uh, James uh, Madison and uh, Thomas Jefferson, among others. I, I didn't put it in my book, but I'm just certain he must have met George Washington as a boy at uh, some point. And so he felt very uh, connected uh, to the nation and felt a sense of personal responsibility and obligation that uh, he must step forward and offer one last chance for the salvation of the Union. And uh, so he writes this uh, letter to um, a Richmond newspaper uh, proposing that there be a convention not of all the states, uh, but of the, <clears throat> uh, he called them uh, the border states, uh, the upper south and uh, the lower Midwest, uh, the, what he would uh, consider the reasonable forces, excluding the firebrands of the deep south and uh, the New Englanders and the, the arch Republicans of the uh, upper Midwest. And he thought if these uh, reasonable voices could be put together in the same room, perhaps some compromise could still be um, achieved the uh, Virginia legislature uh, likes and uh, endorses the idea along with uh, Virginia's um, governor, but they expand it um, in a way that Tyler personally disapproves uh, by issuing an invitation to all the states to attend a, a peace convention. Uh, so he's stuck with that idea, uh, but he is uh, commissioned by uh, Virginia's governor to uh, head north 
uh, to uh, meet with President Buchanan and to ask that this uh, proposal uh, be uh, advertised nationally um, by the President and by the Congress um, for this um, national peace conference. He takes a train from uh, Richmond up to uh, Washington uh, in that uh, January of 1861. And I speculate uh, that uh, as a very knowledgeable man and as a former commander in chief of the armed forces of the United States, uh, he must have known uh, as he was going up uh, what we now know is the, the I-95 corridor, uh, that he, he must have known that these would, be, these would be the great battlefields of the war to come if this peace convention were to fail uh, in its purposes. His idea is, in fact, uh, heartily embraced by President uh, Buchanan. Uh, it's advertised to the Congress. Uh, they don't formally endorse it. Uh, but nonetheless, the invitation goes out. And uh, despite the uh, lack of effective uh, transportation for the time, uh, events unfold uh, very, very quickly. And so within a couple of weeks, uh, delegates are uh, arriving uh, at the uh, Willard Hotel in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, in early uh, February. Um, 131 delegates, at least officially on paper. I don't think they were all ever there uh, at the same time, uh, representing uh, 21 states. So obviously uh, the seceded states are not there. Uh, I, Arkansas never gets around to sending a uh, delegation. Uh, the West Coast states obviously don't have time to send anybody. Some of the upper Midwest states are so very um, Republican and suspicious of this idea coming out of Virginia that they decline to uh, participate. Uh, but most of the uh, other states, including even very Republican New England, decide that uh, yes, it is uh, worth it, even despite our suspicions that this is a Southern and uh, Democratic Party uh, conspiracy to uh, overturn or to outflank the results of the 1860 election. Uh, we should nonetheless uh, participate or at least go as watchdogs uh, to prevent uh, further damage from uh, being um, inflicted. So the Peace Conference was very much a, a child of Virginia, uh, having uh, been uh, thought up uh, by a son of Virginia and advertised in a Virginia newspaper and endorsed by uh, Virginia's um, government. And uh, Virginia itself sent a delegation of five uh, very uh, distinguished people. Uh, but the, the leading politicians of the day were present for the peace conference. And it's a little bit uh, startling to uh, read who was there because uh, you don't recognize their names by and large, uh, even though they were the, uh, the major political personalities of that time, uh, but the, the enormity of the events that would very shortly follow have overshadowed who those people were. And so that uh, today, with very few exceptions, their names are not very recognizable to us. But they included, of course, uh, President Tyler himself, who immediately was elected uh, president of the convention and uh, would uh, preside over it at the Willard Hotel. Uh, one of the few names you will recognize uh, who was uh, the, effectively the leading Republican at the Peace Conference was um, uh, Salmon Chase, uh, the Ohio governor, newly elected uh, senator, um, anti-slavery figure who would uh, go on, of course, to become uh, Abraham Lincoln's uh, Treasury Secretary. Uh, there's an old uh, Whig politician named uh, Hewing uh, who uh, had served in uh, various um, cabinet positions uh, in the previous decades, but uh, not re remembered today, except for the fact that he had a, a uh, stepson uh, who went on to become his um, uh, son-in-law, uh, who very shortly would go on to become, uh, in the months ahead, a very well-known um, 
a federal military officer named William Tecumseh Sherman. There is a, um, well, a member of the Virginia delegation, a, a former Virginia congressman uh, who spent much of his life in the Richmond area, uh, James uh, Seddon, uh, who uh, would uh, be regarded as uh, the most effective uh, orator and uh, performer at the, the peace conference. Uh, he was a, a diminutive figure and uh, very pallid and was described as looking almost deceased. Uh, <laughs> but he had um, very dark eyes, and uh, when he spoke, uh, was uh, very fiery and came alive. Uh, he often wore a, a skull cap and often looked like um, a Jesuit missionary uh, from the 1600s in his um, appearance and uh, in his uh, intensity. There was a former uh, senator and naval officer from uh, New Jersey named um, Stockton, um, who had um, made a name for himself in the um, war with uh, Mexico in um, California. Uh, but his uh, interesting personality connection uh, to the peace conference and to President Tyler is the fact that during Tyler's presidency, uh, he had been um, the uh, commander of a, a naval ship called the USS uh, Princeton that on a, um, a beautiful um, weekend afternoon uh, had taken um, the um, notable personalities of Washington for a pleasure cruise down the Potomac River to uh, Mount Vernon and back. And uh, one of the points of the cruise was to demonstrate the new um, gun on the ship uh, called uh, the Peacekeeper, uh, which was uh, fired off to the delight of the crowd several times. And before the ship uh, returned to Washington, uh, the crowd insisted it be fired off uh, one final time, uh, which it was, and it exploded and uh, killed, of course, uh, uh, several uh, people on deck, uh, including a, a um, member of the cabinet and including a New York um, congressman uh, whose uh, daughter uh, down below, uh, supposedly upon hearing about her father's terrible death up above, uh, fainted and uh, fainted back into the waiting arms of uh, President John Tyler, uh, who was then a widower, and he carried her off the ship and married her some months later. <laughs> And so she became uh, the Jackie Kennedy of her day, uh, 30 years younger than uh, the widower president, uh, very stylish, um, had sort of been a model in New York, which had been sort of scandalous uh, for her family, and uh, was very renowned. And she would accompany her president, to, uh, her uh, husband, the former president, to the peace conference. She loved Washington. Uh, some of her greatest days of glory had been spent there, and she would be a keen observer of what would happen at the peace conference. One of the leading uh, anti-slavery voices at the Peace Conference uh, was a um, former uh, member of Congress from uh, Connecticut uh, named uh, Roger Sherman Baldwin. Uh, you may recognize the Roger Sherman part uh, in that um, Roger Sherman had been one of the founding fathers, was in fact his grandfather, one of the rare individuals who had been uh, participated both in the uh, drafting of the Declaration of Independence and uh, the U.S. Constitution. Um, his grandson, Roger Sherman Baldwin, is uh, better known as uh, the, uh, the attorney in the um, Amistad case, which I'm sure some of you are familiar with. Uh, the, the Amistad was a Spanish uh, slave ship uh, who's, uh, on, en route to Cuba whose slaves um, uh, captured the ship, overturning the crew, and uh, the ship wandered into American uh, waters, uh, was taken into captivity, and that was one of the great issues of the day in the late 1830s. Uh, were they uh, legally slave or free at that point? Uh, the case would go to the U.S. Supreme Court, and uh, the uh, slaves themselves had uh, some very good legal talent, 
Roger Sherman Baldwin and uh, former President John Quincy Adams. And uh, they prevailed in that case. And uh, you may recall that in the movie, uh, Amistad, uh, Matthew McConaughey plays the part of Roger Sherman Baldwin. So uh, when the movie is made about my book, I'm hoping that he will <laughs> reprise that role. He has, uh, he's aged into uh, the, uh, the proper period of life for that. There's a uh, young man at the convention uh, who uh, would not be notable except for the fact that uh, he decides or appoints himself the uh, journal keeper for the convention. His name is Lucius uh, Chittenden. Uh, he was a young uh, Republican uh, from uh, New England who would have uh, a minor role in the Lincoln administration, uh, but uh, he um, uh, somewhat um, uh, grandiloquently, if that's the right term, uh, or melodramatically uh, decides a peace conference uh, could be the equivalent of uh, the Constitutional Convention of uh, 1787, and of course uh, a record must be kept, and perhaps he could be the equivalent of uh, James Madison uh, by keeping the journal by which everyone would recall uh, the events that occurred. He was honest about what he was doing. He announced to his fellow delegates he would be keeping a journal since no official journal uh, would be um, kept. And uh, there were some protests among the delegates. Uh, reporters and observers were being kept out of the uh, convention hall. Uh, there were two Washington policemen posted at the door uh, to ensure that was the case. But uh, President John Tyler uh, always... Uh, a model of uh, decorum and dignity instructs the delegates that, of course, uh, they have no authority over what uh, the individual members may or may not do. And so, of course, Mr. Chittenden may do as he please, as he did. And uh, without his journal, uh, we would not have a, um, a detailed record of what happened at the peace conference. Will uh, Henry Clay's uh, son, the former Cong or the congressman, uh, was there, uh, unfortunately, uh, the great figures like Henry Clay himself and Daniel Webster's and, uh, and others of that generation, the first tier of that generation, have uh, passed away and over the last uh, few years. And so what you have here at the Peace Conference are, uh, unfortunately, the more second tier uh, of that generation, uh, sort of the filler generation, I call them, between the Founding Fathers and the emerging new Civil War generation. <laughs> And then finally, the, the other members of the Virginia delegation, uh, Senator, um, former Senator Reeves uh, from uh, Virginia, from um, the Charlottesville area, a former diplomat, ambassador to Paris, uh, very much a distinguished uh, aristocrat. Uh, his descendant and biographer wrote a, a wonderful book uh, about him, uh, which was presented here um, just last year. Uh, and he was someone who very much uh, favored uh, preserving the Union, if possible, and then there are two other members of the Virginia delegation, who's, one of whose names I will mispronounce, so I apologize in advance, uh, John Brokenbro. Uh, some of you know better. Uh, but he was a, a lawyer, a, a judge, a Democrat, taught at what was then called the Lexington Law School. And in fact, it would be he who would uh, invite um, uh, former General uh, Robert E. Lee to come become um, the president of what became Washington and Lee in Lexington uh, after the war. And the other Virginian, uh, who would actually become a West Virginian, uh, was uh, George uh, Summers, a former uh, congressman and uh, unionist, uh, originally from uh, Fairfax County. Uh, and um, he uh, certainly opposed uh, and would continue, I believe, to oppose a secession even after the peace conference. Well, uh, I tried to uh, discuss a lot of the other personalities who were involved with the peace conference. I didn't want to just present a, a dry history of the proceedings of the, the convention. And the other personalities uh, would include, of course, uh, President Buchanan himself, just a couple blocks away uh, in the White House, uh, with only um, a month left in his term. Uh, opposed secession, of course, but did not think constitutionally he had any power to uh, prevent it. 
there's his uh, niece who functioned as his first lady since he was a bachelor, uh, Harriet Lane. And to her credit, she has um, even now uh, kept the um, Washington social life somewhat uh, intact and um, is uh, sort of, um, to the extent possible, a figure of unity and puts on the final monthly White House uh, reception that February during the peace conference, which the peace delegates uh, themselves um, attend. There's old General uh, Winfield Scott, uh, who's been around since before anybody can remember. Um, he has, uh, he is, is, of course, a native of Virginia himself. Uh, he would, um, and I did not realize this, but it was actually to a peace conference delegate uh, uh, to whom he said this famous remark, uh, but he uh, was an arch-unionist and said that he would gladly uh, manure the fields of Virginia with the blood of its sons before he would allow uh, the collapse of the union that he had so long served. He, uh, seeing the crisis uh, unfolding, had uh, moved uh, the U.S. Army's headquarters from New York City to Washington, D.C. in uh, December and uh, opened up in an office uh, across from the White House next to the Winder Building that's still there on uh, 17th Street and would uh, place himself effectively in charge for security of the federal capital during the peace conference and in the lead-up to uh, uh, Lincoln's um, inaugural. I call him uh, sort of the J. Edgar Hoover of his day. Uh, he had been around forever, and uh, no one challenged him, and he really was in the absence of any kind of um, uh, civilian security service or effective police force. Uh, he was in, the, in charge of uh, security at that time uh, before the, um, the Civil War would break out in Washington, D.C., uh, Stephen Douglas, uh, the senator from uh, Illinois, uh, presidential candidate, uh, failed presidential candidate in the 1860 election, is not himself, interestingly, a peace delegate, uh, but is interacting uh, with the delegates, um, of course. Uh, there's uh, William Seward, former governor, uh, now senator from uh, New York, leading Republican, uh, had tried to be the Republican presidential candidate of the year before, of course, defeated by Lincoln, not himself a peace delegate, uh, but certainly very involved in watching and um, interacting uh, with the delegates and, and hosting uh, Abraham Lincoln when he would arrive in town. Uh, there's the outgoing uh, vice president, John Breckinridge, uh, who, um, uh, again, uh, was himself also a failed presidential candidate uh, the year before and uh, would soon become uh, an official in the new uh, Confederate government and, uh, in fact, uh, would be a general in the Confederate Army with uh, Jubal Early trying to capture Washington, D.C. in the summer of 1864, just three years later. But at this point, he's the vice president of the United States, and he was going to preside over the ratification of uh, the uh, presidential electoral college vote uh, in the coming days, and uh, typically uh, pro forma uh, and not um, getting a lot of attention, but all kinds of conspiracy theories and rumors are swirling in Washington. Will that vote actually take place? and how will he uh, behave in that role. Uh, there's Charles Francis Adams, uh, the uh, Massachusetts congressman, son of uh, John Quincy Adams, grandson of John Adams, uh, who uh, implores the state of Massachusetts uh, to participate in the peace conference uh, over against the opposition of uh, their famous abolitionist uh, senator, uh, Charles Sumner. Uh, there's a New York congressman named uh, Daniel Sickles, uh, later to go on to uh, fame or infamy, uh, in the Civil War, uh, he lost his leg uh, at uh, Gettysburg and um, famously would, for decades later, go to visit his leg at the U.S. Army uh, Medical Museum, uh, which is still on display today, which I have yet to go see. Uh, the museum has a new um, headquarters. Uh, so he's famous for losing his leg. Uh, he's also famous for his uh, many uh, scandals, 
uh, one of which was um, uh, just a couple of years before the peace conference uh, when he had shot his wife's lover dead in Lafayette Park across from the White House in broad daylight. And uh, when charged at his murder trial, uh, he hired a brilliant lawyer uh, named um, Edwin Stanton, uh, who would go on to be the Attorney General of the United States at the time of the Peace Conference, and of course better known as uh, Abraham Lincoln's uh, War Secretary. And Stanton uh, gets him acquitted uh, based on a plea of uh, temporary insanity, uh, supposedly the first time that happened in uh, U.S. law. Uh, so that's just one of his many scandals, but it's a big one. Uh, and um, so he would be a performer um, during the days of the Peace Conference. And then uh, one other personality I'll mention, Phineas Gurley, uh, the pastor of New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. Um, he would go on to become Abraham Lincoln's pastor uh, during the war. Uh, but it was, um, and he was um, like many of the uh, pastors, um, uh, the downtown Washington pastors, uh, he would uh, open up uh, the Washington Peace Conference uh, with prayer. Uh, every day of the Peace Conference, uh, uh, there was a clergyman uh, brought in. Uh, most of these clergy were already friends or acquaintances with the peace delegates. And most of these clergy would at some point be a chaplain of the U.S. House of Representatives or of the Senate and uh, were themselves just prominent uh, political and social actors in Washington. And in fact, it had been Phineas Gurley who had sold uh, the hall uh, to the Willard Hotel where the peace delegates were meeting. It had previously been uh, the F Street uh, Presbyterian Church where he was pastor, uh, they sold the church and uh, moved up the street to open up the new New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. Well, during the uh, peace conference, uh, most of which was um, uh, the, the, the issues on which they would eventually um, uh, vote uh, were put into a, a committee. Uh, and so while that was going on, there are all kinds of uh, dramas unfolding in the city relating to the peace conference, uh, which I describe in my book which really helped to explain the times and the stakes of uh, what were involved. Obviously, there's uh, the Fort Sumter unfolding crisis. Uh, and in fact, uh, when the governor of Virginia had dispatched John Tyler to Washington, D.C., uh, it was not just to uh, initiate the peace conference, but it also was to implore President Buchanan uh, not to intervene with uh, Fort Sumter by resupplying it and stoking the crisis, uh, which John Tyler very much um, tried to do. Uh, during the peace conference, in fact, the very day the peace conference opened, uh, the new Confederate government uh, also is inaugurated in uh, Montgomery, uh, Alabama. There's a young woman who raises the new uh, flag of the new nation uh, over the uh, Alabama State House. She is, in fact, uh, the granddaughter of John Tyler. Um, John Tyler had had uh, close to a dozen children uh, by his first wife, who had died. Uh, and then he would go on to have uh, almost another dozen children by his um, second wife. Uh, and so uh, uh, he was quite uh, the patriarch. Uh, but his uh, children by his first wife, of course, are adults uh, by the time of the Washington Peace Conference. And some of them are quite uh, outspoken about the issues of the day. And in fact, one of his sons had just uh, given a public speech in Norfolk, Virginia, uh, in which he had uh, declared uh, that uh, the union should, quote unquote, go to hell. And so naturally, some Northerners were suspicious of John Tyler, uh, given um, the affiliations and statements of some of his family. Uh, the new uh, president-elect uh, during the peace conference uh, would uh, depart uh, his hometown of uh, Springfield, Illinois, and uh, give his famous speech uh, at the train station there. Uh, I know not uh, when or whether I shall ever return to be among you, 
uh, and then uh, takes this long uh, meandering train trip uh, through the Midwest, the cities of the Midwest and parts of the Northeast, uh, saying um, stately but non-committal things, uh, trying to avoid direct comment on the peace conference, but obviously uh, being kept uh, well-informed. Uh, by and large, the Republicans uh, just hope that uh, the peace conference would play out the clock until Lincoln uh, is uh, elected. Uh, there is the Electoral College vote, which I mentioned, again, not usually an event that people give much uh, thought to, uh, but would Lincoln's election actually be legally uh, ratified? Uh, the vote takes place um, uh, the second week of the peace conference in the uh, chambers of the U.S. House of Representatives uh, with the Vice President John Breckinridge presiding. Uh, the members of the U.S. Senate uh, proceed in uh, by two by twos that's described like uh, animals into the ark. And... Uh, the rumors had been that there would be uh, possibly a physical disruption of this vote or some political stratagem uh, to disrupt it. Uh, one of the, de in fact, the uh, note keeper of the conference, uh, young Mr. Chittenden, had actually gone to see Winfield Scott himself uh, to express his alarm about all the rumors he's hearing. And uh, Winfield Scott is uh, sprawled out um, on his uh, sofa, this uh, ancient man, six foot five, um, very heavy, but raises himself up to his full height and um, uh, assures the young man that uh, he has um, every confidence the vote will take place according to constitutional procedure because he had uh, received personally uh, a promise from Vice President Breckinridge uh, that it would happen. And in fact, um, it did happen. But the peace delegates are all given uh, um, tickets to get into the House chamber, which is under very tight security. And uh, General Scott has surrounded the Capitol uh, with uh, federal troops and um, young Mr. Chittenden, among the other delegates, uh, is there and is told by a man sitting next to him that he has armed men standing by to intervene if there's any attempt to disrupt the vote. Um, there is one Virginia congressman uh, who raises objections uh, during the Electoral College vote. He is ruled out of order by the vice president. Uh, Lincoln uh, is officially elected. Uh, the members of Congress march out, and uh, members of the um, audience up in the galleries, many of them began to shout uh, their protest over what has just happened and their protest over um, what they view as a state of almost martial law imposed by General Winfield Scott with his heavy troop presence. And uh, General Scott is denounced as a military dictator, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And young Mr. Chittenden, as he makes his way uh, back to the Willard Hotel afterwards, uh, claims that the streets are so raucous that his uh, carriage taxi can uh, barely make its way up uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. He may have been uh, exaggerating, uh, but that does illustrate uh, the tensions um, of the time. Well, uh, there's also the preparation for uh, Lincoln's uh, inauguration, and uh, that is certainly a chief concern for General Scott and um, others. Uh, and Lincoln himself would uh, soon arrive at the Willard Hotel um, in advance of his um, inaugural ceremony. Uh, there's also an uh, a interesting but peculiar controversy over George Washington's birthday celebration, again, illustrating just how divided the country is, uh, but um, it, it actually involves the peace conference uh, uh, in that um, Congressman Sickles, uh, later General Sickles, uh, makes a motion in the House of Representatives uh, that um, he's a strong unionist, and he makes a motion that George Washington's birthday should be celebrated with special vigor in the nation's capital this year. Uh, his purpose is be obviously being uh, to um, uh, 
generate uh, union sentiment and perhaps to intimidate the South with a military display in the streets of Washington, D.C., including the Southern delegates at the peace conference. So preparations are made uh, for a military parade, which uh, old John Tyler uh, at his uh, hotel, and he did not stay at the Willard. He stayed at uh, his favorite hotel, Brown's, uh, down the street, uh, finds out about this uh, these plans the night before is um, distressed, if not horrified, and uh, sends a note of immediate uh, protest to President Buchanan. And of course, this George Washington's birthday parade must be canceled. Uh, it would be seen as an intimidation and an affront uh, to the Southern delegates and would be disruptive, disruptive to the peace conference. President Buchanan, being President Buchanan, uh, is intimidated and flustered and uh, cancels the parade that morning, uh, even as the military units are assembling on Pennsylvania Avenue in front of the Willard Hotel, and the crowds are lining the streets. Uh, and so the military units are, are marched back to their barracks, except for uh, the uh, Washington, D.C. militia, who do uh, proceed in their own uh, smaller version of a parade. Congressman Sickles is so upset, uh, he uh, runs to the White House to protest personally. And President Buchanan, being President Buchanan, is uh, intimidated and flustered and uh, <laughs> changes his mind uh, the parade is back on, and so uh, the Army units and Navy units are uh, reassembled in the streets of Washington. It's too late for the Marines. They're all the way out at their barracks in uh, southeast D.C., where they still are today. So too, uh, too late, but uh, there is a second Washington's birthday parade that afternoon uh, that marches by the Willard Hotel, by the White House, where it's reviewed by President Buchanan, Winfield Scott, and others. And of course, um, that is much uh, mocked and ridiculed uh, the next day in the na nation's newspapers uh, around the country. Well, in terms of the peace conference itself, uh, the arguments are, are pretty uh, succinct. Uh, this Mr. Ewing, uh, the old Whig from Ohio, uh, makes a point, uh, a point shared by many of the Northern delegates uh, that uh, the issue of slavery, although he personally disapproves of slavery, it's not the business of the North, and uh, they shouldn't even be discussing it. Uh, it's, a, it's the business of the South. Let them adjudicate it. Uh, old Commodore Stockton from New Jersey uh, makes the point uh, that uh, the election of Abraham Lincoln, the Republicans in 1860, had been uh, a, not just an aberration, uh, but a disturbing aberration, which he likened uh, to the, uh, uh, the Puritan Revolution in uh, England in the 1640s, uh, fueled by religious zeal, and uh, the country could not contain it unless it uh, were to recede. Uh, a delegate from New York, a, a Democrat, uh, insists that Lincoln was not elected on the slavery issue, uh, but on um, other issues, explaining his uh, 40,000 vote margin in uh, New York. Uh, Roger Sherman Baldwin from Connecticut, the anti-slavery figure, uh, insists that the forces of freedom uh, could not compromise indefinitely or constantly appease the forces of uh, slavery. Uh, James Seddon from Virginia, uh, is himself the most uh, ardent uh, pro-slavery uh, spokesman at the peace conference. Um, as you know, as I mentioned, uh, the Deep South states are not represented here, just the Upper South, and most of them express their uh, thoughts on slavery in more moderate terminology. Uh, but Seddon is kind of the exception in that he has vast land holdings in Louisiana, uh, many, many slaves in Louisiana, and so in many ways he is the voice of the Deep South at the convention. And he insists that slave owners have a constitutional right not only to retain their own slaves, uh, but to expand slavery into the Western territories. And of course, that's the major issue of contention uh, at the peace conference and before the nation, in that the Republicans had been elected a platform 
of uh, not contesting slavery where it existed, uh, but uh, refusing to countenance uh, the spread of slavery into any of the Western territories. So how would the Peace Conference handle that issue uh, is the big uh, question. Well, they talk and they talk and they talk and they talk, um, and um, their eventual compromise proposal is being crafted into committee in which each state is uh, represented. Uh, meanwhile, Abraham Lincoln finally arrives um, in Washington. Uh, as you know, there had been rumors of uh, an assassination plot in Baltimore. So he slips through Baltimore uh, very early um, on a Saturday morning and uh, checks into the Willard Hotel um, early that morning. Um, in fact, one of the Peace Conference delegates has to give up his suite uh, to accommodate Lincoln. Uh, their reservation system must not have been uh, very competent. And... Um, uh, there's a story that in the peace conference uh, that Saturday, uh, James Seddon is uh, seated at his um, uh, there uh, quietly as the, as the proceedings continue, and it's observed that his um, uh, he has an actual uh, one of his slaves with him as his assistant and valet, and uh, he comes in quietly and hands uh, Mr. Seddon uh, a note, which he opens up and reads quietly, uh, and. Um, Someone uh, over, looking over his shoulder sees that the note says, uh, Lincoln has arrived in the hotel. Seddon says nothing but passes it to um, a fellow Southern delegate uh, to his side who exclaims, uh, Lincoln got through Baltimore? So <laughs> the implication was maybe he had some insider's knowledge of a plot against Lincoln, but I think, in fact, everyone knew Baltimore was a place of um, historically uh, uh, lots of political rioting and was bound to be potentially dangerous for Lincoln or, or anyone else passing through um, at that time. But very shortly, uh, John Tyler uh, announces to the peace delegates that uh, he has an invitation from the president-elect uh, to uh, come upstairs and meet him that evening at uh, 9 o'clock. And uh, there are uh, protests from some of the delegates that this was a presumptuous of Mr. Lincoln. He should come down and meet them. Uh, but again, being a model of decorum, President Tyler says no. He is the president-elect, of course. We will accept his invitation uh, graciously. It's interesting to me, this is um, uh, the dead of winter, and the, the, the delegates uh, started, wouldn't typically start their day till about noon, and they would meet late into the night uh, by um, gaslight. And um, I don't know if they just like to sleep late or what was um, on their mind, but that's the kind of uh, schedule they kept. And so they went up to meet uh, Mr. Lincoln at 9 o'clock uh, that night, um, again, like uh, animals into the ark, two by twos, uh, heading up and uh, introduced uh, one by one to Lincoln by uh, Sam and Chase standing uh, at his side. And it's noticed that Mr. Lincoln uh, seems to have a remarkable political memory. Um, about, um, I think, 11 of the delegates had served with him in Congress in the 1840s. He rem remembers all of them. Uh, but even the people he's never met before, uh, he knows uh, details about their biography, uh, which he uh, recites to them. And he tries to make uh, jokes which uh, go over well with some people, not so well uh, with others. Uh, when he meets Senator Reeves from uh, Virginia, whom he had not met before, but he tells Senator Reeves, of course I know uh, your marvelous uh, reputation, uh, but you're much uh, shorter than I anticipated uh, you would be, uh, but no doubt very great in intellect. And uh, Reeves shoots back with no doubt uh, not as great as yours, uh, Mr. Lincoln. And uh, supposedly Lincoln, when he met someone, would like to uh, uh, make lots of jokes about height, so he would have men uh, stand uh, back to back with him, uh, comparing who was taller. Obviously, he was always taller, sometimes by a foot uh, or more. And so uh, a lot of people thought that was uh, kind of rustic and crude, uh, including probably Senator Reeves, who was very patrician. Uh, but others liked it. Uh, the meeting uh, is cordial, but uh, 
at least initially, uh, but they get into the meat of the matter uh, later on with some of the Southern delegates uh, challenging him, uh, sort of uh, trying to chide him into taking uh, specific uh, positions, which largely uh, he evades, uh, although he uh, repeats to them uh, that uh, he uh, will safeguard the Constitution and the Constitution offers the only um, pathway forward for the nation. Uh, could they not rely on that? Uh, which many of them uh, do not find uh, sufficiently uh, reassuring. Uh, but it is said afterwards uh, that as he explained his views about the Constitution, he appeared to many of his critics to be a more substantive person uh, than they had uh, anticipated. And uh, Senator Reeves himself uh, would write his um, son afterwards uh, that Lincoln clearly uh, meant well, um, that he told lots of stories and uh, jokes, uh, but clearly he doesn't appreciate the seriousness of the situation, uh, which was unfair because Lincoln did, but that was just his uh, political manner of trying to put people uh, at ease. But supposedly Reeves also said at the time uh, that uh, Lincoln may not be a, uh, a James Madison, whom he had known, or an Andrew Jackson, whom he had also known, uh, but clearly he was going to be a strong figure and his own man in the presidency and should not be underestimated. Well, uh, that was on uh, Saturday. Uh, the next morning, uh, William Seward uh, walks down to the Willard Hotel and takes Lincoln up to his church, uh, St. John's Episcopal Church, for Sunday services. Uh, Washington doesn't recognize Lincoln because he now has whiskers for the first time. Uh, and they sit quietly in, in the back of the church until uh, uh, Seward introduces him to the pastor. Then the buzz begins, and uh, people are chatting and whispering about Lincoln. A woman tell, is quoted in the, in the Washington newspaper the next day, Lincoln is a much more handsome man than she had been led to expect. Not typically a comment you hear about Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln has a brunch or, or lunch at uh, Seward's uh, house near Lafayette Square, uh, where, of course, uh, Seward himself would be nearly slashed to death four years later on the night of Lincoln's own assassination. The peace conference uh, begins again uh, that Monday morning. And uh, on Tuesday, they begin voting on their, um, uh, their final compromise uh, proposals, uh, which essentially would, um, in their efforts to uh, cleave the Union together and perhaps induce the seceded states back uh, into the Union, uh, would, through a series of constitutional amendments, uh, affirm slavery where it exists, uh, allow slavery to expand uh, under the terms of the old Missouri Compromise, basically into the, the Southwest uh, territories, which was the big issue of contention, uh, ban slavery in Washington, D.C. Oh, I'm sorry, ban slavery in Washington, D.C., but only with the permission and approval of neighboring Virginia and Maryland, um, mandate constitutionally enforcement of uh, fugitive slave laws, uh, reimburse slave owners for their escaped slaves with uh, funds from the federal government, and uh, essentially uh, protect all of these amendments with a guarantee they could not be revoked from the Constitution except by unanimous consent uh, of the states. So this committee had put these proposals together with each state represented. It was assumed, of course, they would um, go through. Uh, when they vote, uh, as they're voting on each measure, it's not going through by the consensus that had been anticipated. In fact, it's more like uh, 10 or 11 or uh, 12 tens, very divided. And finally, when they get to the issue of allowing slavery into the Western territories, it fails by two votes. And there's literally a hush in the hall uh, followed by, uh, it's described as pandemonium, because they realize this means the collapse of the peace conference. So John Tyler gavels them into immediate adjournment uh, for, um, obviously, um, an intense night of negotiations and lobbying in the um, Willard Hotel. 
according to one account, Lincoln may have met with some of the delegates uh, that night. Um, the question is, did he encourage delegates to any Republican delegates to switch their votes to allow this compromise um, package to go through? There's no clear evidence, but Illinois did the switch from negative to positive with uh, one of Lincoln's Republican friends uh, making that possible. And he later told Lincoln that, uh, I guess my career is over. In fact, it, it wasn't. Uh, and so the next morning when they vote, uh, it all goes through, but uh, very narrowly. And John Tyler thanks the delegates for their services uh, to the nation. Uh, they thank the Willard Hotel for donating the conference space and the gas lights at a total cost of $735 across uh, the three weeks. Uh, they adjourn uh, with the package going up to Congress for consideration and the expectation the delegates will march in Lincoln's inaugural parade and uh, that um, Tyler himself would lobby for the, for the compromise package before Congress. Instead, Tyler uh, leaves Washington immediately and uh, within a couple of days is here in Richmond at the, uh, standing on the front steps of the Exchange Hotel with James Seddon at his side and uh, denounces the Washington Peace Conference as a worthless affair, a waste of time. Uh, clearly, the North uh, is not prepared to make the compromises needed to preserve the Union. Uh, the Virginia Convention to Consider Secession has already been in convention with John Tyler as an elected member, but in a holding pattern. Uh, now it would move on uh, with its work. Uh, when the Peace Conference uh, proposals go to Congress, uh, effectively, um, well, they're voted down in the Senate by three to one. In the House, they don't even get to a vote. The abolitionist congressman from Pennsylvania, Thaddeus Stevens, uh, says that he's with John Tyler on this issue. Everyone, a lot of people laugh, uh, and there's no more consideration of the Washington Peace Conference um, compromise package. And so it uh, dies a kind of uh, ignominious um, death. And so, uh, again, historians dismiss it as a failure, a footnote, not worthy of a lot of analysis or a consideration, but uh, Kentucky Senator um, uh, Crittenden at the time, himself the author of a, a very similar uh, compromise a proposal, uh, I think uh, very perceptively noted that no, it had not been a waste of time. It had served uh, some utility. Uh, the peace conference had um, essentially slowed down the spiral of the nation. It had delayed Virginia's own secession uh, considerably. It helped to keep the border states in the union. It ensured, uh, ensured Lincoln's um, safe uh, ratification of his election and also his inauguration, and it allowed time for union sentiment to coalesce in the northern states, none of which could have been taken for granted um, earlier in 1861. Uh, and so um, that's where my story closes, except for uh, afterwards um, using John Tyler and his wife as sort of um, uh, an embodiment of uh, old Virginia and uh, the old South and the civilization that would soon be uh, swept aside, of course, um, uh, he leads the way in Virginia's uh, secession uh, and then is elected, as you know, to the House of Representatives of the new uh, Confederacy, uh, but does not live uh, to see them come into session. Uh, he, uh, his mother-in-law uh, implores um, his wife and children to come to New York to live with her for safety. He writes his mother-in-law a letter uh, saying that if she could see the, defense, the military defenses of Virginia, she would uh, realize that Virginia is safer than uh, Staten Island is. Uh, ironically, uh, his Sherwood Forest would be under Union occupation. Uh, shortly after his death, uh, his wife would uh, have to get a, uh, a pass through Union lines to uh, get to New York. Uh, later, after she had returned, she would have to take a blockade runner and run through the gauntlet of the Union Navy uh, 
go to Bermuda uh, and then um, up to New York uh, that way, taking a bale of cotton with her to sell at uh, an exorbitant price. So she was uh, financially savvy uh, and then um, writes many letters to uh, President Lincoln uh, complaining about the, the occupation of uh, Sherwood Forest, the fact that uh, the slaves have left um, their ownership under her and taken many of her dresses, she claims, and she wants her slaves and her dresses back. So she gets no response from President Lincoln uh, unexpectedly, but she does tell him, uh, please uh, consider if your own wife were in my situation as a presidential widow, which there again, his wife would be a presidential widow in just um, four years. She goes on to um, uh, recover her uh, reputation, moves back to Washington, establishes uh, friendships with subsequent first ladies, including Mrs. Grant, uh, has her, da her daughter goes to the convent school at Georgetown. Uh, she converts to Catholicism uh, and uh, eventually moves back um, to Richmond and uh, dies at the same hotel uh, where uh, President Tyler had denounced the Washington Peace Conference and where President Tyler himself uh, had died uh, right before the beginning of the new Confederate Congress. Um, and in fact, she had been there for his death because she had been warned in a dream uh, that he was about to die and rushed to Richmond um, even though he had seemed initially in good health and uh, he had died uh, just several days later. And so I end my book with a quotation uh, from uh, Winston Churchill uh, that the Civil, the Civil War was the most unavoidable war in uh, human history. And uh, my research and knowledge of the Washington Peace Conference and of uh, the passions uh, involved on both sides there tend to confirm that view. So I appreciate your patience in my telling a long but hopefully interesting story. And if there's time for questions, I'll be glad to entertain them. Thank you. But um, could you tell us a bit more about the admixture of religion and politics and this whole secession issue? Well, I devote uh, a whole chapter to uh, the clergy who participated in the convention, just because I found it interesting and significant uh, in that uh, the Civil War, in many ways, was uh, a religious civil war, and that way had been paved by the division of the major denominations over slavery in the years uh, beforehand. And I share uh, some of that story. and. Uh, I explained how the clergy who delivered the prayers at the Washington Peace Convention, even though a number of them had been from uh, the South, they all ended up being very pro-Union and um, anti-slavery and remaining in Washington throughout the war with uh, one exception, a Kentucky pastor who ended up being uh, arrested in Baltimore for supposedly harboring a, a Confederate uh, officer. But I just found that very um, interesting that even these, um, for example, the, the priest at St. John's Episcopal Church, the Church of the Presidents, where John Tyler himself um, uh, had uh, endowed a permanent presidential pew. Um, he was from South Carolina, but he remained pro-Union, anti-slavery. Um, Jefferson Davis, who had left town right before the Peace Conference, had attended um, the Episcopal Church uh, one block north of the Willard Hotel, had just purchased a pew there, and the big issue in that church was, uh, do we go ahead and put his plaque up, even as he becomes president of the Confederacy? The plaque doesn't stay up long, uh, but the priest, who's uh, himself Southern, is under suspicion, and goes to see uh, the War Secretary Stanton to demand exoneration. Uh, and um, Stanton uh, essentially tells him, uh, not only will I exonerate you, I will attend your church, and uh, ends up sitting in um, Jefferson Davis's pew. So some irony there. 
Uh, thank you for an interesting talk. Uh, I have a question about the selection of the delegates, number one, uh, how were they selected? And number two, uh, with the six states that had already seceded, was there any indication that those states would consider at all the result of the, uh, uh, of the, of the uh, meeting in Washington? Or would we have had a truncated confederacy uh, and then the Union, what was the best that could come out, I guess, is what I'm trying to say of the peace conference. The delegates in some cases were chosen by the state legislatures, in other cases by the governor, which obviously was um, quicker. Um, in terms of inducing the uh, seceded states back, I think that was the dream or the vision of those who were most supportive of the peace conference, uh, but there's no indication that was ever seriously uh, considered. And of course, the fact that uh, literally within hours of the peace conference, it's already being knocked down and rejected by the federal Congress and by John Tyler himself. There was really no time for seceded states to consider the proposals uh, very um, seriously. Uh, and the newspapers of the seceded states were very uh, dismissive of the peace conference from uh, the very beginning as being um, uh, destined to be uh, fruitless. And the newspapers of the time were a major resource for my research because they, they covered the peace conference uh, uh, bountifully. Yes, uh, to what degree was the uh, peacekeeping uh, conference and unionist sentiment, did it grow out of the uh, valley of Virginia where moderation and I'm, th I'm thinking about uh, Alexander Stewart who had been a cab cabinet member I think in Fillmore's administration and maybe a congressman. He seemed to have been active. Uh, I don't think he was an official delegate, but I, I seem to remember him being involved to some degree. So if you could just comment on that. And also, did pretty much all of the delegates become uh, backers of the Confederacy? Did any of them leave the state or, or do anything like that? Um. Of the five delegates from uh, Virginia, Reeves and uh, Summers from Western Virginia, soon to be West Virginia, were considered the most uh, unionist. Uh, Reeves ultimately uh, did go along with uh, the Confederacy. Summers, uh, I don't think he did. He remained in what became West uh, Virginia. And in terms of um, unionist, unionist uh, sentiment in the state, uh, well, obviously the fact that Summers came from West Virginia, that reflected the heart of unionist uh, sentiment uh, in Virginia. Um, Summers was from, uh, as I mentioned, in uh, Lexington, which I don't, uh, uh, well, no, he was pretty, uh, he became pr pretty pro-Confederate. Reeves was from Charlottesville. I think just the fact that he had himself known the founders, he had studied under Thomas Jefferson, he knew James Madison, uh, had been a senator and uh, a U.S. diplomat, very devoted to the Union, uh, fancied himself a man of the Constitution, uh, which Lincoln appealed to when they met. So, um, but I don't think of Charlottesville as being very uh, pro-union in its sentiment, but Reeves held on as long as he could. From what you're saying, uh, the Congress, you know, did not take this whole resolution seriously. And uh, <clears throat> they seemed to be dismissive the whole idea of secession, like it was almost like it would go away. What do you think? 
Well, you might be right. The question is, uh, were they fully aware of uh, the extent of the disaster that was about to uh, unfold? And there were a number of delegates who, in their um, dramatic speeches, would refer to rivers of blood, rivers of blood, rivers of blood uh, about to flow if we fail here. So I think uh, abstractly, intellectually, they understood the stakes involved, but I don't think emotionally they fully appreciated or understood it could be a war that would kill uh, six or 700,000 people. And I'm sure there were many who were unionists who were still skeptical that um, uh, the country would permanently shatter, although the fact that six soon to be seven states had already seceded, it obviously was a very serious threat, so I don't know that they minimize that. Uh, but uh, the Republicans who were at the peace conference, as I mentioned, just wanted the clock to run out uh, to get Lincoln elected by the Electoral College, get him inaugurated. So Sam and Chase, for example, is sort of the Republican caucus leader, kept making motions to adjourn and to reconvene after the inauguration, which was always knocked down. The true believers in the peace conference's promise were the older men uh, who were part of, again, that uh, middle generation who, over the previous decades, had been successful in uh, packaging these uh, peace these accommodations that had kept the union together for so long. But uh, I think they thought they had one more trick in their bag, and clearly they didn't. I'm going to take your all's picture while I'm up here. <laughs> Was there any consideration or in connection with the conference or, as far as you know, anywhere else, to the idea of a peaceful separation that would have allowed the uh, states to secede without the uh, a war? No, but there were northern delegates who wanted the peace conference to uh, specifically stipulate that there was no right to secession, and uh, the southern delegates uh, would not go along with that. Almost to a man, they wanted to... Um, retain uh, that option, including most of the Virginia delegates. Thank you.